0: Martyr Part Two of Five Stories by Alan Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. They didn't look very much alike. There was a sparseness about Paul, a tall, lean, hungry-looking man, with large, soft eyes that hid their anger, and a face that was lined with tiredness and resignation. A year ago, when Dan had seen him last, he had looked a young sixty, closer to forty-five. Now he looked an old, old sixty-one. How much of this was the cancer Dan didn't know? The pathologist had said, not a very malignant tumor right now, but you can never tell when it will blow up. He'd better be scheduled at the center, if he's got a permit. But some of it was Paul, just Paul. The house was exactly as Dan had expected it would be, though he had never been inside this house since Paul had come to Starship Project fifteen years ago. Stuffy, severe, rather gloomy, rooms packed with bookshelves, drawing-boards, odds and ends of papers and blueprints, and inks, thick, ugly furniture from the early two-thousands. A cluttered, improvised helter-skelder barn of testing-lab, with modern equipment that looked lost and alien scattered among the moldering junk of two centuries. "'Get your coat,' Dan said. "'It's cold outside. We're going back to Washington. Have a drink.' Paul waved him toward the sideboard. "'Relax. Your pilot needs a rest. Paul, I didn't come here to play games. The games are over now.' Paul poured a brandy with deliberation, handed Dan one, sipped his own. "'Good brandy,' he murmured. Wish I could afford more of it. "'Paul, you're going with me.' The old man shrugged with a little tired smile. "'I'll go with you if you insist, of course. But I'm not going.' "'Do you know what you're saying?' "'Perfectly.' Paul, you just don't say thanks, but I don't believe I'll have any, when they give you a rejuvenation permit. Nobody refuses rejuvenation. Why, there are a million people out there begging for a place on the list. It's life, Paul. You just can't turn it down." "'This is good brandy,' Paul said. "'Would you care to take a look at my lab, by the way? Not too well equipped, but sometimes I can work here better than—' Dan swung on his brother viciously. I will tell you what I'm going to do," he grated, hitting each word hard, like knuckles wrapping the table. I'm going to take you to the plane. If you don't come, my pilot and I will drag you. When we get to Washington, we'll take you to the center. If you don't sign the necessary releases, I'll forge them. I'll bribe two witnesses who will swear in the face of death by torture that they saw you signing. I'll buy out the doctors that can do the job, and if they won't do it, I'll sweat them down until they will. He slammed the glass down on the table, feeling his heart pounding in his throat, feeling the pain creep up. I've got lots of things on lots of people, and I can get things done when I want them done. People don't fool me in Washington any more, because when they do, they get their fingers burned off with the knuckles. For Christ's sake, Paul, I knew you were stubborn, but I didn't think you were block-headed stupid. Paul shrugged apologetically. I'm impressed, Dan, really. You don't think I can do it, Dan roared. No doubt you could, but such a lot of trouble for an unwilling victim. And I'm your brother, Dan. Remember? Dan Fowler spread his hands in defeat, then sank back down in the chair. Paul, tell me why. I don't want to be rejuvenated. As though he were saying, I don't want any sugar in my coffee. Why not? If I could only see why, if I knew what was going through your mind, maybe I could understand. But I can't. Dan looked up at Paul, practically pleading. You're needed. I had a tape from Lijinsky last month. Do you know what he said? He said, why couldn't you have come to Starship ten years earlier? Nobody knows that ship like you do. You're making it go. That ship can take men to the stars, now, with rejuvenation, and the same men can come back again to find the same people waiting for them when they get here. They can live that long now. We've been tied down to seventy years of life to a tight little universe of one sun and nine planets for thousands of years well we can change that now we can go out that's what your work can do for us he stared helplessly at his brother you could go out on that ship you're building paul you've always wanted to why not paul looked across at him for a long moment there was pity in his eyes there was also hatred there and victory long-awaited bitterly won do you really want me to tell you I want you to tell me." Then Paul told him. It took about ten minutes. It was not tempered with mercy. It split Dan Fowler's world wide open at the seams. "'You've been talking about the Starship,' said Paul Fowler. "'All right. That's as good a starting place as any. I came to Starship Project—what was it, fifteen years ago? Almost sixteen, I guess. This was my meat. I couldn't work well with people. I worked with things, processes, ideas. I dug in hard on Starship. I loved it, dreamed it, lived with it. I had dreams in those days. Work hard, make myself valuable here, maybe I'd get rejuvenation. So I could work more on Starship. I believed everything you just said, Alpha Centauri, Acturus, Vega, anywhere we wanted to go. And I could go along. It wouldn't be long, either. We had Leginsky back with us after his rejuvenation, directing the project. We had Keller and Stark and Eddie Cochran, great men, the men who had pounded Starship Project into reality, took it out of the storybooks, and made the people of this country want it bad enough to pay for it. Those men were back now, new men, rebuilt bodies, with all their knowledge and experience preserved. Only now they had something even more precious than life time. And I was part of it, and I too could have time paul shook his head slowly and sank back into the chair his eyes were very tired a dream nothing more a fantasy it took me fifteen years to learn what a dream it was not even a suspicion at first only a vague puzzlement things happening that i couldn't quite grasp easy to shrug off until it got too obvious not a matter of wrong decisions really the decisions were right but they were in the wrong places something about starship project shifting changing somehow something being lost slowly nothing you could nail down at first but growing month by month then one night i saw what it was that was when i equipped the lab here to prove to myself that starship project was a dream he spread his hands and smiled at dan like a benign old chips to a third-form schoolboy the starship isn't going to alpha centauri or anywhere else it's not going to leave the ground I thought I'd live long enough to launch that ship and be one of its crew. Well, I won't. That ship wouldn't leave the ground if I lived a million years." "'Garbage,' said Dan Fowler succinctly. "'No, Dan. Not garbage. Unfortunately, we sometimes have to recognize our dreams as dreams, and look reality right square in the face. Starship Project is dying. Our whole civilization is dying nimrock drove the first nail into the coffin a hundred and thirty years ago lord if they'd only hanged him when his first rejuvenation failed but that would have only delayed it now we're dying slowly right now but soon it will be fast very fast and do you know who's getting set to land the death blow he smiled sadly across at his brother you are dan dan fowler sprang from his chair with a roar my god paul you're sick of all the idiot delights i've ever heard i-i oh jesus he stood shaking groping for words staring at his brother you said you wanted me to tell you tell me tell me what dan took a trembling breath and sat down visibly gripping himself all right all right i heard what you said you must mean something but i don't know what let's be reasonable let's forget philosophy and semantics and concepts and all the thrills for just a minute and talk about facts eh huh? just facts all right Facts," Paul said, Kenneth Armstrong wrote Man on Mars in 2028. He was fifty-seven years old then, and he hadn't been rejuvenated yet—fundamentally a good book, analyzing his first Mars colony, taking it apart right down to the silk undies, to show why it had failed so miserably, and why the next one could succeed if he could ever get up there again. He had foresight. With rejuvenation just getting started, he had a whole flock of ideas about overpopulation and the need for a Mars colony. He was all wet on the population angle, of course, but nobody knew that then. He kicked Keller and Leginsky off on the Starship idea. They admit it. It was Man on Mars that first started them thinking. They were both young, with lots of fight in them, okay? Just stick to the facts," said Dan coldly. Okay. Starship Project got started, and blossomed into the people's baby. They started work on the basic blueprints about sixty years ago. Everybody knew it would be a long job, cost money, plenty of it, and there was so much to do before the building ever began. That was where I came in fifteen years ago—building. They were looking for engineers who weren't eager to get rich. It went fine. We started to build. Then Keller and Stark came back from rejuvenation. Leginsky had been rejuvenated five years before. Look, I don't need a course in history, Dan exploded. Yes, you do, Paul snapped. You need to sit down and listen for once, instead of shooting your big mouth off all the time. That's what you need real bad, Dan. Paul Fowler rubbed his chin. There were red spots in his cheeks. Okay, there were some changes made. I didn't like the engine-housing. I never had, so I went along with them a hundred percent on that, even though I designed it. I'd learned a few things since. And there were bugs. It made perfectly good sense, talking to Leginsky. Starship Project was pretty important to all of us, dangerous to risk a fumble on the first play, even a tiny risk. We might never get another chance. Leginsky knew we youngsters were driving along on adrenaline and nerves, and couldn't wait to get out there. But when you thought about it, what was the rush? Was it worth the chance of a fumble to get out there this year instead of next? Couldn't we take time to find a valid test for that engine at ultra-high acceleration before we put it back in? After all, we had time now. Keller and Stark just back with sixty more years to live. Why the rush? Okay, I bought it. We worked out a valid test on paper. It took us four years of work on it to find out you couldn't build such a device on Earth, but never mind that. Other things were stalling all the while. The colony planned for the ship. Choosing the crew—what criteria? What qualifications? There was plenty of time. Why not make sure it's right? Don't leave anything crude—if we can refine it a little first. Paul sighed wearily. It snowballed. Keller and Stark backed Leginski to the hilt. There was some trouble about money. I think you had your thumb in the pie there, getting it fixed for us, didn't you? More refining, work it out, detail, get sidetracked on some aspect for a few years, so what? Lots of time, rejuvenation and all that. Talk about the Universalists beating Reinhardt out and throwing in the center open to everybody, etc., etc. But somewhere along the line, I began to see that it just wasn't true. The hold ups, the changes, the digressions and snags to the refinements were all excuses. All part of a big, beautiful, exquisitely reasonable façade built up to obscure the real truth. Leginsky and Keller and Stark had changed. Dan Fowler snorted. I know a very smart young doctor who told me there weren't any changes. I don't mean anything physical. Their bodies were fine. Nothing mental, either. They had the same sharp minds they always had. It was a change in values—they'd lost something that they had before—the drive that made them start Starship Project, the urgency, the vital importance of the thing. It was all gone. They just didn't have the push anymore. They began to look for the easy way, and it was far easier to build and rebuild and refine and improve the Starship here on the ground than to throw that Starship out into space. There was a long silence. Dan Fowler sat grave-faced, staring at Paul, just shaking his head and staring. "'I don't believe it,' he said finally. "'You do, maybe, because you want to. But you're mixed up, Paul. I've seen Lijinsky's reports. There's been progress, regular progress, month by month. You've been too close to it, maybe. Of course, there have been delays, but only when they were necessary. The progress has gone on,' Paul stood up suddenly. "'Come in here, Dan. Look.' He threw open a door, strode rapidly down a corridor and a flight of stairs into the long, low barn of a laboratory. Here, let me show you something. He pulled out drawers, dragged out rolls of blueprints. These are my own. They're based on the working prints from Starship that we drew up ten years ago, scaled down to model size. I've tested them. I've run tolerances. I've checked the math five ways and back again. I've tested the parts, the engine, model size. The blueprints haven't got a flaw in them. They're perfect as they'll ever get. No, wait a minute, look. He strode fiercely across to slide back a floor panel, drew up the long glittering thing from a well in the floor. Sleek, beautiful, three feet long. Paul maneuvered a midget loading crane, guided the thing into launching position on the floor, then turned back to Dan. There it is. Just a model, but it's perfect. Every detail is perfect. There's even fuel in it. No men, but there could be, if there were any men small enough." Anger was blazing in Paul's voice now, bitterness and frustration. "'I built it because I had to be sure. I've tested its thrust. I could launch this model for Alpha Centauri tonight, and it would get there. If there were little men who could get into it, they'd get there, too—alive. Starship project is completed. It's been completed for ten years now. But do you know what happened to these blueprints—the originals?' They were studied. They were improvements. They almost had the ship built, and then they took it apart again. "'But I've read the reports,' Dan cried. "'Have you seen the starship? Have you talked to them over there?' It isn't just there, it's everywhere, Dan. There are only about seventy thousand rejuvenated men alive in this hemisphere so far, but already the change is beginning to show. Go talk to the advertising people. There's a delicate indicator of social change, if there ever was one. See what they say. Who are they backing in the government? You! Like hell! Reinhardt? No, they're backing up Moses Tyndall and his abolitionist goon-squad who preach that rejuvenation is the work of Satan. And they're giving him enough strength that he's even getting you worried. How about Rodrigo Aviado and his solar energy project down in Antarctica? Do you know what he's been doing down there lately? You'd better find out, Dan. What's happening to the Mars colony? Do you have any idea? You'd better find out. Have you gone to see any of the Noble Ten that are still rattling around? Oh, you ought to. How about all the suicides we've been having in the last ten years? What do the insurance people say about that?" He stopped from lack of breath. Dan just stared at him, shaking his head like Silly Willie on the TVs. Find out what you're doing, Dan, before you push this universal rejuvenation idea of yours through. Find out—if you've got the guts to find out, that is. We've got a monster on our hands, and now you've got to be a big Dan Fowler playing God and turning him loose on the world. Well, be careful. Find out first while you can. It's all here to see if you'll open your eyes, but you're all so dead sure that you want life everlasting that nobody's bothered to even look. And now it's become such a political bludgeon that nobody dares to look." The model ship seemed to gleam in the dim laboratory light. Dan Fowler walked over to it, ran a finger up the shiny side to the pinpoint tip. His face was old and something gone from his eyes when he turned back to Paul. "'You've known this for so long and you never told me. You never said a word!' He shook his head slowly. "'I didn't know you hated me so much. But I'm not going to let you win this one either, Paul. You're wrong. I'm going to prove it if it kills me. Well, try his home number then. Dan Fowler snarled into the speaker. He nodded his cigar and fumed as long minutes spun off the wall clock. His fingers drummed the wall. How's that? Damn it! I want to speak to Dwight Mackenzie. His aide will not do. Well, of course he's in town. I just saw him yesterday. He waited another five minutes and then his half dollar clanked back in the return with apologies. All right, get his office when it opens and call me back." He reeled off the number of the private booth. Carl Golden looked up as he came back to the table and stirred sugar-cream into half-cold coffee. No luck? Son of a bitch has vanished, Dan leaned back against the wall, glowering at Carl and Jean. Through the transparent walls of the glassed-in booth they could see the morning breakfast-seekers drifting into the place. We should have him pretty soon. He bit off the end of a fresh cigar and assaulted it with a match. "'Dad, you know what Dr. Moss said.' "'Look, little girl, if I'm going to die in ten minutes, I'm going to smoke for those ten minutes and enjoy them,' Dan snapped. The coffee was like lukewarm dishwater. Both young people sipped theirs with bleary, early-morning resignation. Carl Golden needed to shave badly. He opened his second pack of cigarettes. "'Did you sleep on the way back?' Dan snorted. "'What do you think?' I think Paul might be lying to you." Dan shot him a sharp glance. "'Maybe, but I don't think so. Paul has always been fussy about telling the truth. He's all wrong, of course, but I think he believes his tale. Does it sound like he's lying to you?' Carl sighed and shook his head. "'No, I don't like it. It sounds to me as though he's pretty sure he's right.' Dan clanked the cup down and swore. "'He's demented. That's what he is. He's waited too long. His brain is starting to go. If that story of his were true, why has he waited so long to tell somebody about it? Maybe he wanted to see you hang yourself. But I can only hang myself on facts, not on the paranoid ramblings of a sick old man. The horrible thing is that he probably believes it. He almost had me believing it for a while. But it isn't true. He's wrong, good Lord, he's got to be wrong." Dan broke off, staring across at Carl. He gulped the last of the coffee if he isn't wrong then that's all kiddies the mountain sinks into the sea with us just ten feet from the top of it well would you walk into the center of a retread now without being sure he's wrong of course i wouldn't dan said peevishly paul has taken the game right out from under our noses we've got to stop everything and find out now before we do another damn thing the senator dragged a sheaf of yellow paper out of his breast pocket and spread it out on the table I worked it out on the way back. We've got a nasty job on our hands, more than we can possibly squeeze in before the hearing comes up on December 15th, so number one job is to shift the hearings back again. I'll take care of that as soon as I can get Mackenzie on the wire. What's your excuse going to be? Jean wanted to know. Anything but the truth. Mackenzie thinks I'm going to win the fight at the hearings, and he wants to be on the right side of the toast when it's buttered he'll shift the date back to february fifteenth okay next step we need a crew a crowd that can do fast accurate hard work and not squeal if they don't sleep for a month or so tommy Sanborn should be in washington he can handle statistics for us in addition we need a couple of good sharp detectives Jean, the girl nodded i can handle that end it'll take some time getting them together though how much time a couple of days Fine. We can have lots of work for them in a couple of days." The senator turned back to Carl. "'I want you to hit Starship Project first thing.' Carl shook his head. "'I've got a better man for that job. Saw him last night, and he's dying for something to do. You don't know him. Terry Fisher. He'll know how to dig out what we want. He was doing it for five years on Mars.' "'The Alky?' Dan didn't like it. "'We can't risk a slip to the TVs. We just don't dare.' There won't be any slip. Terry's jumped in the bottle to get away from Mars, that's all. He'll stay cold when it counts." Okay, if you say so. I want to see the setup up there, too, but I want it ready for a quick scan. Get him down here this morning to soften things up, and get it all out on the table for me. You'd better tackle the admin, then. Let's see—uh, Tenors Agency in Philly's a good place to start. Then hit Metro Insurance. Don't waste time with the underlings. Go to the top and wave my name around like an orange flag. They won't like it a damn bit. But they know I have the finger on Cornwall in communications. We'll take his scalp if they don't play ball. All you'll have to do is convince them of that. What's on Cornwall? Cornwall's been fronting for Moses Tyndall for years. That's why Tyndall never bothered me too much, because we could get him through Cornwall any time we wanted to. And the Admin and Metro have everything they own sunk into Tyndall's plans." Carl's frown still lingered. "'Don't worry about it, son. It's okay. I think maybe you're underestimating John Tyndall.' "'Why?' "'I worked for him once, remember? He doesn't like you. He knows it's going to be you or him in the long haul, with nobody else involved. And you realize what happens if Moses gets wind of this mess?' Finds out what your brother told you, or even finds out that you're worried about something." Dan chewed his lip. "'He could be a pain, couldn't he?' "'He sure could—more than a pain. And Cornwall wouldn't be much help after the news got out.' "'Well, we'll have to take the risk, that's all. We'll have to be fast and quiet.' He pushed aside his coffee cup as the phone blinker started in. "'I think that gets us started. Jean, you'll keep somebody on the switchboard and keep track of us all.' When I get through with Mackenzie, I may be leaving the country for a while. You'll have to be my ears and cover for me." Yes, yes, I was calling Dwight Mackenzie. The phone box squawked for a moment or two. Hello, Dwight. What? Oh, thunder! Well, where is he? Timagami. Ontario. An island? He covered the speaker and growled. He's gone moose hunting. Then— Okay, get me Eastern Sea Jet Charter Service five minutes later they walked out into the street and split up in three different directions a long series of gray flickering pictures then for dan fowler a fast meal in the car to the charter service landing field morning sun swallowed up sky gray then almost black temperature dropping a gray drizzling rain cold the wind carrying it across the open field in waves slashing his cheeks with icy blades of water gray shape of the ski plane. Eight feet of snow up there, according to the I.W.B. reports. Lakes frozen three feet thick. Going to be a rough ride, Senator. Jean's quick kiss before he climbed up. The sharp worry in her eyes. Got your pills, Dad? Try to sleep. Take it easy. Give me a call about anything. But there aren't any phones, the operator said. Better not to tell her that. Why scare her any more? Damned hard, anyway. A wobbly takeoff that almost dumped his stomach in his lap sent the briefcase flying across the cabin, and gray-black nothing, out through the midday viewports heading north. Faster, faster—why can't you get this crate to move? Sorry, Senator—nasty current's up here. Maybe we can try going higher. Time—Paul had called it more precious than life, and now the time flew screaming by in great deadly sweeps, like a black-winged buzzard. And through it all—weariness, tiredness that he had never felt before. Not years, not work—weary body, yes, and time was running out. He should have rejuvenated years ago. But now, what if Paul were right? Can't do it now. Not until Paul is wrong—a thousand times wrong. That was it, of course. That was the weariness that wasn't time-weariness or body-weariness. Just mind-weariness—weariness weariness at the thought of wasted work, the wasted years, a wasted life. Unless—Paul is very wrong a snarl of disgust a toggle switch snapped a flickering tv screen wonderful pickup these days news of the world brought to you by atomics international the fuel to power the starship the president returned to washington today after a three-week vacation conference in calcutta with chinese and indian dignitaries full accord and a cordial ending to the meeting american supplies to be made available and on the home front appropriations renewed for antarctica project to bring solar energy into every home aviato was quoted as saying huge abolitionist rally last night in new chicago as john moses tyndall returned to that city to celebrate the fifteenth birthday of the movement that started there back in twenty one nineteen no violence reported as tyndall lashed out at senator daniel fowler's universal rejuvenation program Twenty-five-hour work week hailed by Senator Reinhardt of Alaska as a great progressive step for the American people. Senator Reinhardt, chairman of the policy-making criterion committee, held forth hope last night that rejuvenation techniques may increase the number of candidates to six hundred a year within five years. And now, news from the entertainment world. Going down, then, into flurries of northern snow, peering out at the wider gloom below, a long stretch of white with blobs of black on either side resolving into snow-laden black pines a long flat lake-top of ice and snow taxing down engines roaring sucking up snow into steam in the orange afterblast and ahead up from the lake a black blot of a house with orange window lights reflecting warmth and cheer against the wilderness outside then dwight mackenzie peering out into the gloom eyes widening in recognition little mean eyes with streaks of fear through them widening then smiling pumping his hand dan my god i couldn't imagine hardly ever see anybody up here you know come in come in you must be half frozen what's happened something torn loose down in washington and more questions fast tumbling over each other no answers wanted talky-talk questions to cover surprise and fear and the one large question of why dan fowler should be dropping down out of the sky on him which question he didn't think he wanted answered just yet a huge rugged room blazing fire in a mammoth fireplace at the end moose heads a rug of thick black bear-hide like to come up here a day or two ahead of the party you know mackenzie was saying does a man good to commune with his soul once in a while do you like to hunt you should join us, Dan. Libby and Donaldson will be up tomorrow with a couple of guides. We could find you an extra gun. They say hunting should be good this year." One chair against the fireplace, a book hastily thrown down beside it, Sextra Special, Cartoons by Culp. Great book for soul-searching senators. Things were all out of focus after the sudden change from the cold, but now Dan was beginning to see. One book, one chair but two half-filled sherry-glasses at the sideboard. "'Can't wait, Dwight. I have to get back to the city. But I couldn't find you down there, and they didn't know when you were coming back. I just wanted to let you know that I put you to all that trouble for nothing. We don't need the hearing date in December, after all.' Weariness suddenly in Mackenzie's eyes. "'Well, nice of you to think of it, Dan. But it wasn't really any trouble—no trouble at all. December the fifteenth is fine. As a matter of fact, better than the February date would have been. Give the committee a chance to collect itself during the holidays, ha <laughs> "'Well, it now seems to me it wouldn't be so good for me, Dwight. I'd much prefer it to be changed back to the February date.' "'Well, now—' pause. "'Dan, we have to settle these things sooner or later, you know. I don't know whether we can do that now—' "'Don't know—why not?' The moose hunter licked both lips couldn't keep his eyes on Dan's eyes, focused on his nose instead, as if the nose were really the important part of the conversation. It isn't just me that makes these decisions, Dan. Other people have to be consulted. It's pretty late to catch them now, you know. It might be pretty hard to do that. No more smiles from Dan. Now look, you make the calendar, and you can change it. Face getting red, getting angry. Careful, Dan. Those two sherry glasses. Watch what you say. I want it changed back, and I've got to know right now. But you told me you'd be ready to roll by December 15th." To hell with caution. He had to have time. Look, there's no reason you can't do it if you want to, Dwight. I consider it a personal favor—I repeat, a very large personal favor—if you'd make the arrangements. I won't forget it." What did the swine want—an arm off at the roots? "'Sorry,' said a voice from the rear door of the room walter Reinhardt walked across to the sideboard you don't mind if i finish this dwight a deep breath from mackenzie like a sigh of relief go right ahead walt sherry dan i don't think so it was walter all right tall upright dignified walter fine shock of wavy hair that was white as the snow outside young old lines on his face some men looked finer after rejuvenation much finer than before there had been a chilly look about Walder Reinhardt's eyes before his first retread. Not now. A fine man, like somebody's dear old grandfather—just give him a chunk of wood to whittle, and a jack blade to whittle it with. But inside the mind was the same. Inside no changes. Author of the Reinhardt Criteria—The Royal Road to a Self-Perpetuating Immortal Elite. Dan turned his back on Reinhardt and said to Mackenzie, "'I want the date changed.' I—I I can't do it, Dan," an inquiring glance at Reinhardt, a faint smiling nod in return. He knew he'd blundered then, blundered badly. Mackenzie was afraid. Mackenzie wanted another lifetime, one of these days. He decided that Reinhardt would be the one who could give it to him. But worse, far worse. Reinhardt knew now that something had happened. Something was wrong. "'What's the matter, Dan?' he said smoothly. "'You need more time. Why? You had it before and you were pretty eager to toss it up. Well, what's happened, Dan? That was all, back against the wall. The thought of bluffing it through, swallowing the December 15th date and telling them to shove it flashed through his mind. He threw it out violently, his heart sinking. That was only a few more days. They had weeks of work ahead of them. They needed more time. They had to have it. Reinhardt was grinning confidently. Of course, I'd like to cooperate, Dan. Only I have some plans for the hearings, too. You've been getting on people's nerves, down in the city. There's even been talk of reconsidering your rejuvenation permit." Your move, Dan—God, what a blunder! Why did you ever come up here? And every minute you stand there with your jaw sagging just tells Reinhardt how tight he's really got you. Do something—anything! There was a way. Would Carl understand it? Carl had begged him never to use it—ever, under any circumstances. And Carl had trusted him when he said he wouldn't. But if Carl were standing here now, he'd say yes, go ahead, use it, wouldn't he? He'd have to." "'I want the hearings on February 15th,' Dan said to Reinhart. "'Sorry, Dan. We can't be tossing dates around like that, unless you'd care to tell me why.' "'Okay,' Dan grabbed his hat angrily. "'I'll make a formal request for the change tomorrow morning and read it on the TVs then i'll also announce a feature attraction that the people can look forward to when the hearing date comes we weren't planning to use it but i guess you'd like to have both barrels right in the face so that's what we'll give you walter reinhardt roared with laughter another feature attraction you do dig them up don't you ken armstrong's dead you know peter golden's widow isn't the smile faded on reinhardt's face he looked suddenly like a man carved out of gray stone dan trembled let the words sink in. You didn't think anybody knew about that, did you, Walt? Sorry. We've got the story on Peter Golden. It took us quite a while to piece it together, but we did with the help of his son. Carl remembers his father before the accident, you see, quite well. His widow remembers him even before that. And we have some fascinating recordings that Peter Golden made when he applied for rejuvenation, and when he appealed to the Committee's decisions. Some of the private interviews, too, Walter. I gave Peter Golden forty more years of life," Reinhardt said. You crucified him," Dan said bluntly. There was silence—a long silence—then— Are you selling? I'm selling. Cut out my tongue, Carl, but I'm selling. How do I know you won't break it anyway? You don't know, except that I'm telling you I won't. Reinhardt soaked that in with the last gulp of sherry. Then he smashed the glass on the stone floor. Change the date he said to mackenzie then throw this vermin out of here back in the snow and darkness dan tried to breathe again and couldn't quite make it he had to stop twice going down to the plain then he was sick all the way back end of Martyr, part 2 recording by kirk Ziegler, ogden utah voiceovers by kirk.com